I'm Mitzi Miller. This is 70 Million. It's 7 a.m. in Echo Park, just above downtown Los Angeles. The park is mostly a lake, with grass and paths built around the water's edge, fringed with water lilies. A fountain in the center continuously erupts like a small geyser. There are ducks and geese and open spaces amid the noise and smog of L.A. Then there's the metal fence that encloses the entire park. A few months before COVID hit the U.S., a group of unhoused people started living in tents by the lake. The fence showed up to keep them out. As of January 2022, more than 28,000 L.A. residents were living outside. All over Los Angeles, the unhoused camp out on sidewalks and in parks, often banding together in small, makeshift communities. Local residents are getting more concerned about safety and their ability to use parks and sidewalks. So much so, what to do about the unhoused has become the number one political issue in Los Angeles. According to city data, the sanitation department received over 48,000 calls about homeless encampments in 2021. Like a lot of places across the country, L.A. has responded by passing or expanding laws that effectively make it illegal to live outside in certain public spaces, often using law enforcement officers to remove people from such places. Almost every state and many U.S. cities have passed laws that unhoused people can break just by trying to survive. The system is rigged against them, and their stories are everywhere. In this special two-part episode, Mark Betancourt tells one of those stories. March 24th, 2021. Hundreds of police officers, many in riot gear, amassed in a parking lot near Dodger Stadium. The staging area was only a few minutes' drive from Echo Park, where a group of unhoused people had been living in tents for more than a year. The city had been transferring people in the camp to temporary housing for months. Now the police were coming to close the park and remove anyone who tried to stay. We had, like, people on the lookout kind of driving up and down Sunset, just, like, seeing what was going on, seeing if there's any, like, police or sanitation trucks incoming. Ashley Bennett is an advocate for unhoused people and an organizer with Ground Game LA, a grassroots nonprofit. She'd worked with the people living in Echo Park for more than a year, helping them get through some very tough times by building a small community. In the process, she'd become part of an extended family, and she was there that day to help defend it. And I remember getting a picture of, like, dozens of cop cars staged at Dodger Stadium. And I remember seeing it, and I was like, there's no way that's for us. Like, we're a peaceful community of, like, a few people are left. Like, there's no way that, that police response is for us. I, I just feel like I was in denial of, like, what was about to happen. But then someone, like, sent us word that, like, oh, yeah, no, they're coming. They're coming that direction. And I was like, oh, my, we are not ready for this. We sent messages out to, like, all different movement groups being like, this is really happening. We need as many people as possible here to defend the park. Like, please send anyone that you can. 
Hundreds of people responded, unhoused and housed Angelinos alike. Student journalist Emily Holzhauser captured the day on video. That evening, a woman named Queen, a resident of the park encampment, climbed onto a park bench and gave a speech to the crowd. Because I've been here for 30 years. My mother sold corn on that corner. So whatever's happening tonight, hits home. They're ready and they're coming hard. But you know what we have and they will never have? Cora. We have heart. We have love for this place. The police arrived after dark. There were more than 400 officers, and they were armed with less-than-lethal projectile launchers and batons. They blocked off streets around the park and told the protesters to leave. Throughout that night and into the next night, protesters refused to disperse. Some shined strobe lights and yelled at the police. The police responded with force. This sound was captured by freelance journalist Vishal Singh, who tweeted that he was hit with a baton and almost crushed by officers while filming. Police were hitting these people with their batons. Here's Queen. We had seen people being dragged out already. We had seen people being pushed, being hit. I personally saw one, one he must have been like 17, 18. They were holding him by his wrists and by his feet, like carrying him like this. He was knocked out. A homeowner in the neighborhood, Riley Montgomery, says he was overwhelmed by the scale of what was happening. He and his neighbors had also spent months organizing, pressing the city to clear the unhoused people out of the park and get them into housing. If the city had done outreach and offered housing to people when there were only 10 tents in the park, this, that would have never have happened. It should have never been allowed to get to that point. And I said that over and over again. It should have never been allowed to get to that point. More than a year after that night, I visit Queen in the hospital. She's tiny, less than five feet, and looks even smaller in her hospital bed. She smiles, even though she's in a lot of pain. She has a condition called cirrhosis, extensive damage to her liver that she says comes from years of alcoholism. She says addiction was her way of dealing with the stress of living outside, in Echo Park, when she had nowhere else to go. By her side is her soft-spoken husband, who also lived in the park. That's where they met. His name is Cesar Segura, but he goes by Wall Street. I just, it was a name I gave myself. Uh, you know, I didn't want to give people my name because a lot of times you don't know if you can trust them. So a lot of people go by nicknames. It represents a dream about being not only financially secure myself, but the people I care about, the people I love. Wall Street's long hair is up in a loose ponytail, and he looks as tired as Queen does. He's been sleeping in the chair next to her bed for days, squeezing in some work on his laptop when he can. Queen's real name is Jessica Mendez, but everyone who knows her calls her by her nickname because she always takes care of her people. Now Wall Street is taking care of her. Can I have water? Yes. It's here in her hospital room that Queen and Wall Street tell me their story. For Queen, it starts when she and her family moved to the Echo Park neighborhood of Los Angeles from Mexico when she was a year and a half old. We've only moved apartments once, but same building. My mom sold corn on that corner, and my dad used to sell uh, shoes on the opposite corner for Payless back in the day. So it's like this was our home. 
this is where we work, this is where we socialize, and then we have the park right behind us. So literally, it's our playground. Queen's family didn't always have money for food at the end of the day, so another vendor would swap her mom corn for tamales. But we never went hungry. Like, no matter what, we never went hungry. You literally went down the block and you said hi to everybody, and everybody knew me, and everyone knew whose daughter I was. So it was just... It wasn't just my mom, I want to say, in a way, raising us. It was like the whole community. Queen's family still lives in that apartment, but the neighborhood has changed around them. There are fewer immigrants, and the median home price in Echo Park is now over a million dollars. In October of 2020, Queen was 32 years old and living in the Bay Area, studying to be an electrician. One day, she was back in L.A. visiting her family when she was hit by a car. Technically, it was like a hit and run. Um, I was left almost for dead. She was in the hospital for three months. Not being able to go back to San Francisco, I lost everything. My apartment that I had there, the job that I had there, everything that I had. And then come, and then being in the hospital, coming out, I didn't really have anything. There are a thousand pathways into homelessness. Disability, addiction, or mental illness can be factors. Sometimes all it takes is an accident. But studies have shown that for most people, it comes down to one thing, how difficult it is to get and keep housing. Queen worried that if she stayed in her childhood apartment, it could put her whole family at risk. Her five daughters and one granddaughter already lived there with her mom and several other family members. And she says the landlord had been threatening to evict them because of the crowding. It's one of those things that you have to decide which of the two is the lesser evil. Do I stay here and cram everything more up and let my family see me go through this much pain? Or, you know, my idea is like, okay, I'm just, I'm only a block away. I'm, I live at the park anyway, pretty much, because I'm there all the time. And just stay there. There had been a handful of people living in tents in Echo Park along the shores of the lake for years. Recently, the encampment had started to grow into a small community. Queen knew many of the people living there. So she decided to get a tent and set it up in the park. Camping in L.A. city parks is illegal. So is camping in other public spaces. One city ordinance called Section 4118 prohibits sitting, lying, sleeping, or keeping personal belongings in any public right-of-way, meaning sidewalks or streets. In 2021, the L.A. City Council amended 4118 to allow the council to designate special enforcement zones, where unhoused people are given a deadline to leave. Any belongings left after the deadline are cleared out by city sanitation workers. Anyone who doesn't leave is removed by police, and they get a citation. People who resist are charged with a misdemeanor and either jailed or fined. One analysis, created by the campaign of Kenneth Mejia, a 2022 candidate for L.A. City Controller, showed that special enforcement zones cover about 20% of the city's sidewalks. What we're doing today, even as improved, tells people who are unhoused and unsheltered and have no place to go where they cannot sleep. But it does not tell them where they can sleep. Mike Bonin is an L.A. City Council member for District 11 on the west side. He's leaving office at the end of 2022. He went through bouts of homelessness in his 20s, and he was one of a minority on the council who has argued against the city's use of special enforcement zones. 
I would say if there has been a a a consistent element of the of the nine years I've been in office in terms of what we have discussed at the city council, it has been criminalization of homelessness, um, not solving homelessness, but criminalization of homelessness. Almost 42,000 people were experiencing homelessness in the city of Los Angeles in January of 2022, the last time the government counted. More than 28,000 of them lived outdoors. According to the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, there isn't enough affordable permanent housing. For that matter, the city only has enough shelter beds for about a third of its unhoused population. If we are consistently adding no camping zones... Uh, but but not uh, adding housing at at the same time, uh, then uh, you're you're creating a situation where people will be moved out of sight and then back out on the street on another corner. In other words, unhoused people are put in a position where they can't avoid breaking the law. The system is rigged against them, and that's not a metaphor. Ashley Bennett, the organizer from Ground Game LA says the special enforcement zones are designed for this purpose. There are definitely known encampments, larger encampments, that you can see very clearly that are targeted. Um, By the way, some of these um, zones have been drawn. Um, And then there are individuals as well. You know, we have people like one one or two people in an encampment that have just been there for a really long time. And then you'll see like a sign go up that says just like, one little swath of the street, exactly where those people are staying, is what's outlawed and what is going to be subject to being swept on a weekly basis. Ashley used to be an outreach worker with the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, or LASA. It's a joint agency of the city and county, and part of Ashley's job there was to reach out to people before and during enforcements, which he calls sweeps, and help connect them with services, including helping to get them on a path to housing. A 2018 U.S. Circuit Court decision said cities can't criminalize unhoused people who sleep in public spaces unless they can offer an alternative. So Lassa's job is to try to fill in that gap. Ashley says the city should be focusing on the people who need services the most. But that's not how it always plays out. Oftentimes we'd get messages directly from council offices, and that would be a priority in our day. Like if an encampment is being complained about, that's the first thing we're going out in the morning to do. So would would it be that explicit where the council office would actually tell you we're getting complaints about these people? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Here's council member Mike Bonin again. Right now we have a situation where where lots of people are, are, are living on the street and there's unregulated encampments everywhere. And that is a failure for everybody. You're housed, you're unhoused. That's that's a bad situation. The We then attach ourselves as a city government to policies that are inherently divisive because it's about saying where people cannot be instead of where people can be. And that then pits unhoused people versus housed people. All of this set the stage for what happened at Echo Park Lake. When only a few people were living in the park, there weren't many complaints about it. And for the most part, the city left them alone. In late 2019, a few young, black, unhoused men were tired of being criminalized elsewhere in the city. So they came to the park and set up their tents. They would become the leaders of what grew into a community and a movement. I wasn't able to talk to any of them, but Ashley knows them well. She started doing outreach in the park right around the time they arrived. They 
essentially just became the core group that people checked in with when they came to the camp or if they needed anything. Um, If they needed food, if they needed a tent, if they needed a sleeping bag, like if somebody was giving them problems, um, they just became kind of the unofficial like keepers of the camp. That organization, sense of community, and fewer sweeps attracted people to the camp. More tents went up. Because there was a concentration of need in the park, services started showing up. Nonprofit organizations and city-funded programs that would bring food or a truck with a mobile shower. Then the Los Angeles Police Department and city park rangers started coming around, telling people the park was closed at night and they'd have to leave. When the comprehensive sweep notices started going up, it was just kind of solidifying the fact that this group needed to come together as a community. Um, So the leaders started to do Know Your Rights trainings. Uh, which taught them how to talk to cops, how to counter these situations. Um, And we started beginning to formulate, you know, plans for if comprehensive operation did come down. Like, what would we do as a community response? Let's actually see if we can stop these sweeps in an alternative way. Um, Because something's got to give. The chance came in January of 2020, when sanitation workers showed up at the park to clear out the encampment. The camp leaders decided to resist the sweep, and refused to go. With help from Ashley and organizers from a group called Street Watch LA, along with dozens of activists who came out to support the camp, it turned into a full-fledged protest. I remember they, like, one of their tactics ended up being, like, driving one of their sanitation trucks, like, onto the sidewalk. And um, just the immediate thing in my mind was something that I learned, like, a de-escalation tactic from... Um, like an environmental action that I'd been to years before. It's just like, okay, like if a vehicle's coming at you, like if you feel like it's safe, sit down in front of it because like that's taking a non-aggressive stance and like they can't move forward or they're at fault, like the person in the vehicle. So I was like, okay, great. Like, let's stop this. I'm going to sit down. Everybody sit down. Um, so yeah, just like things like that, kind of reacting in the moment and ultimately we're able to stop that sweep, um, which was amazing. Uh, but that's the Action that ended up getting me fired <laughs> from Lhasa. Losing her job at this stage of her life was no small thing. I was relying on, like, neighbors for food. Uh, made, like, $17 an hour when I started at Lhasa. So my rent was my entire paycheck. Like, I should have been unhoused after losing that job. Ground Game LA, the grassroots organization that she'd helped found a few years earlier, offered her a job where she could keep working with unhoused communities. Then the situation changed. Both coasts. Tonight, Los Angeles County, where 10 million people live, has declared a public health emergency. This comes as there's a recognition of our interdependence that requires of this moment that we direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. But not everyone could stay home. Unhoused people everywhere were stuck in public, exposed. And for the people living at Echo Park Lake, there was another problem. They had a pandemic, like all the services stopped. All of that got taken away. Uh, And you saw the leaders of the camp be like, okay, well, shoot. All this stuff has been taken off the map. Like, let's build our own. Like, let's build our own showers. They took away our showers. Let's build our own. Um, They took away the food distribution. Let's build our own. Wall Street was a new arrival at the camp. He says he had been unhoused for a few years, since fighting a wrongful DUI cost him so much he couldn't afford to keep the room he was renting. He's a freelance software programmer, 
He had been living on the streets, teaching himself to code on his laptop, charging it wherever he could until police chased him away. When he got to Echo Park Lake, he jumped right in, helping to build the camp shower. It was a wooden structure with gravel underneath to control drainage. You know, I've worked on roofing, I've done construction, I've done all types of things. So, yeah, I can work a hammer. And, you know, and we did it. And we didn't have all the tools we needed, but we got it built and it worked and it was beautiful. And people got to use it. There was also a library, a garden, a pantry where the encampment gathered food donations. Streetwatch set up a charging table where people could charge their phones. The camp pooled some money and gave a few camp residents jobs, like cleaning up trash in the park or organizing donations, so they could earn a little bit of extra cash and benefit from being part of the camp's social fabric. I was, I was amazed. Just I got to see really, you know, how, how, how much of a, how promising it was and how really special the whole, the whole place was. Every meeting I went to, every time I talked to them, it was about community, you know. This is our community. You have dignity. You have purpose. You give each other purpose, and, and, and you work together, and you build something. Queen and Wall Street met during an outdoor church service at the park, organized by local church leaders. I fell in love with it the first time we met. You can, you can see a lot when you look into someone's eyes, you know? So with her, I saw a lot of love, and I, and I try to give that, you know, when I first saw her, I try to show as much love as I could. My dad was like, you know, like, he had come to the service with me. So um, it doesn't matter how old you are, but if you're with your dad and there's boys, it's like... (laughs) um, Being on the street, being a woman, you learn to be tough. Very little room for for affection. And um, with him, I didn't have to fight anymore. He saw me for me. Queen's tent was on the north end of the park, where the playground was. There were several families set up there, too. And she took it upon herself to try to make sure the area was safe. I would just walk around all the time to make sure everyone was okay. So the whole thing was, if you see a needle, if you see anything on the floor, it doesn't belong, throw it away for the kids. If someone wasn't keeping their area clean, for example, Queen and others would respond as a community. There were people there that were hoarding way too many things, you know. And so we would come together and talk as a group and we would approach the the person and uh, address that you know, address the issue and ask very nicely, you know, like, hey, you know, we all live here. This is the issue we're having. Is that something we can work on? They were more open to it because then at the same time, when they needed something, Queens got me, you know? So it's like a give and take, take and give. Part of a community, you know? And then also like looking out for each other because we all kind of had clear that as soon as the fighting or drug use started to come out or violence, then there would be a reason for the cops to be like, well, they're causing havoc. They're not letting the the neighbors sleep. They're not le- letting the residents sleep, which is why we tried to not have that issue so we wouldn't get kicked out. That problem wasn't theoretical. As the camp grew, some of the house neighbors took notice. Echo Park, uh, like any uh, city in a major metropolitan area like Los Angeles, always had uh, occasional crimes and it had tents that would come and go, and that was never a big deal. When Riley Montgomery and his wife bought their house in the hills above the park, the house wasn't in great shape. It took years to fix because I did a lot of the work myself, with permits, of course. But um, that sense of hard work and that sense of, like, taking something and really building it to be part of your community is kind of why I was offended, I think, when people decided they wanted to live here 
uh, basically for free because I worked so hard. You know, I'd worked my ass off to be able to afford to have a place here. Like I started noticing it started going from like four or five tents to like seven or eight to nine to ten, and then all of a sudden there were like you know almost twenty tents. But then that started attracting crime because you started finding needles here and there, and you started seeing. You know, people that obviously needed mental help and they were acting you know, a little irrational and unstable, you know, maybe, you know, lurching at people that were walking by and acting aggressively. Riley started a petition to get housing for people living in the park, which garnered thousands of signatures. He and other neighbors formed a group called Friends of Echo Park Lake. They organized to write letters and sent out flyers asking people to call elected officials, especially their city council member, Mitch O'Farrell, who has worked to build affordable housing in the district. There was never an intention to, you know, kick people out or create some, you know, um, situation where people didn't have housing. The intent was always get the city to understand that this is a huge issue and that neighbors are interested in solving it and then get people housed. So that was always the intention, was create a system that works for everyone. But the messages the group was sending were mixed. Riley is a documentary filmmaker, and he used that skill to make a short documentary about the encampment. He called it Echo Park, Chaos in Los Angeles. It's got an ominous soundtrack and includes footage of fights in the park. What do you want from me? I don't want you on my side. I'm going to be right there. Riley also interviewed neighbors about the encampment. It got to the point that there were so many tents, uh, there was no place to avoid <laughs> just having a free space without being concerned for our family. I wouldn't say, like, I didn't feel like I belonged there, um, but I didn't feel welcomed. One of the things in that documentary that I wanted to do was I wanted to shame the city. Like, that is a shameful documentary. You watch it, and it's like, you're like, wow, you want the city to feel bad. That's the intent. I wanted them to look at the mess they had created because of their ineptitude and say something has to change. Riley sent the documentary to Councilmember O'Farrell and put it up on YouTube, where it got a lot of comments from supportive neighbors. And I started realizing there were a lot of people that were concerned about this. And at the same time, uh, crime was going up and overdose deaths were happening at the lake. Five people died in the park in 2020, three from overdoses. Overdose deaths spiked across the country that year. In Los Angeles County, there were nearly 50% more drug-related deaths in the first few months of the pandemic compared to the same period the year before. And one study found that unhoused people were generally 12 times more likely to die of an overdose than the general population. But Queen says it's not only unhoused people who use drugs or die from them. It's kind of one of those double standards. Like, I smoke weed. <clears throat> I even when I had my apartment, I would do it there. But of course, doing it on the out, like outside, I think, yeah, people became more aware. And I think that was the anchor that they used to say, oh, these people don't care. They just want to break the law. But literally, there's people that are doing it in their homes, in their garages, in their cars. But because we're doing it in our, because to us, that, that was our home. Our tent was our home. As for Riley's claim that the camp brought more crime, city data reflects that there was an increase in crime in and around the park during the boom times of the encampment. According to an L.A. Times analysis, burglaries and aggravated assaults both increased significantly in 2020 compared to the decade average, and unhoused people were disproportionately the victims of assault in the park. 
if there is a, a, a crime near an encampment, it gets reported and it gets immediately attributed to the encampment. Um, when it might be somebody preying on somebody in the encampment, or it may be just adjacent and, 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 and unrelated to the encampment. Here's Mike Bonin, the council member from L.A.'s West Side. It inevitably leads to, oh, okay, the solution to this, th- this is not a homelessness problem, this is a crime problem, therefore the solution to this must be more police officers. As complaints about the Echo Park encampment piled up, the police became more of a constant presence. They always had dark sunglasses on. As soon as they, they get out of the car, they would put their hand on the belt, on, on their weapon, to kind of like, to me, it's like saying, you know, I can use it, you know, if I want to. Nighttime was hardest. Helicopter, always at night, always at night. You can't, you can't really sleep. You know it's LAPD because they would be flashing the lights. Um, the helicopters, the cops coming and surrounding a tent, flashing lights and scaring the shit out of people. Queen found it hard to get enough rest, and the stress wore her down. It meant I was grumpy the next day. I wasn't all the way together, literally no sleep. Um, I was very upset most of the time. It just, it took a massive toll on people, on their morale, on their spirit, on their physical. And a lot of people packed up their tent and, and finally decided to go. Wall Street thinks this treatment was all part of a plan to reduce the population of the park. The more people that, you know, that they got out of Echo Park, the less people that were there to, to fight for it. After the pandemic began, the Centers for Disease Control recommended that unhoused encampments not be cleared unless housing options were available. People displaced from camps could be cut off from services, and if they were sick, they could spread COVID-19. The mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, had issued a directive to the city government that everyone living in Echo Park had to be offered housing before they could be removed. Councilmember O'Farrell promised the same thing. It looked like the city had actually heard Riley and his neighbors about what they wanted to happen. Lhasa outreach workers started showing up in the camp with more frequency. So did workers from Urban Alchemy, a nonprofit outreach group hired by Councilmember O'Farrell to supplement Lhasa's work. So at first they, they started coming in very little days and very slowly, and it was more of like a friendly kind of um, people around there, like picking up trash, giving out coffee, giving out donuts. And then slowly it became into like, oh, well, we're going to sweep and you need to go here. You need to go to the PRKs. PRK stands for Project Room Key. It was a new program to protect the most vulnerable unhoused people from COVID-19. Elderly people who were living outside or those with health conditions were being offered hotel rooms where they could ride out the pandemic. It was paid for with funding from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. Camp residents had been asking the city to put them up somewhere safe for months, but it had been hard to get a room, and a lot of people were on waiting lists. But now, Queen says suddenly rooms were being offered to everyone in the Echo Park Lake encampment. So right off the bat to me was like, why are are all these people getting rooms? when there's been a massive line since way back then. So to me, it was just right off the bat, noticed it as being tactical, being um, like almost, I want to say a chess move. It all of a sudden became a priority. Like you got to visit every week. You got to visit every day. Denise Velasquez was an outreach worker at LASA during this time. She was one of the many workers the agency brought from all over the city, even paying them overtime to work on the weekends. 
I didn't understand it because they had so many teams from different areas go in and help. And so that was my other, like, well, why are we rushing? Like, what's going on? Like, what's the rush? Now I understand. They had an agenda. Denise says she never offered Project Room Key rooms to people who didn't qualify for them. But it wouldn't surprise her if others did, given the pressure put on them to get people out of the park. I also talked to Molly Reisman, chief programs officer at LASA. She told me that encampment resolutions, as she called them, can go well. Encampment resolution can be done in a way where you're helping people get into a much more positive and healthy situation, where we're able to build trust with people, where we have time to build those relationships, where we can give people accurate information so that we can help them make an informed choice and we can give them authentic offers of assistance. Echo Park was a unique situation in that It was driven by a variety of outside factors. You know, LASA was not the lead in that effort. There was no service provider that was the lead in that effort. But I do think it's helpful to have somebody leading the effort who's really focused on the needs of the people in the encampment. Because, you know, a bazillion challenges come up when you're doing encampment resolution. And it's good to be really people-focused when you're, when you're doing this so that you can address those challenges and you have to, you know, compromise and make changes and all sorts of things happen. You were talking about how it needs to be provider-led and it needs to be people-focused. So how was Echo Park Lake not those things? I don't think I'm the best person to answer those questions. I mean, it was a city initiative. I think we can all say it was a city initiative, and I think those are questions for the city. Councilmember O'Farrell declined my request for an interview, but a spokesperson told me that the park was closed only, quote, once transitional housing placements were secured for every single person experiencing homelessness at Echo Park Lake. Mayor Garcetti's office never responded to my request for comment. Even before the park was emptied, there was debate about whether interim housing, like Project Room Key Rooms, counts as housing. O'Farrell claimed the park residents were on the path to a better life. Some residents of the encampment believed the city was just getting them out of the way. Mike Bonin gave me his perspective. There are so many people in Los Angeles who are angry and frustrated about encampments. And they should be. I mean, who the hell isn't doff about the fact that, you know, tens of thousands of people are sleeping outdoors? Uh, But that manifests itself in an anger towards people who are unhoused. Uh, And that lends itself to solutions that, that, that eventually get down to, let's just get them out of my sight. Riley, the organizer from Friends of Echo Park Lake, told me he wasn't angry at unhoused people in the park. He was angry at the city for failing to house them. But Mike says, in the context of dealing with a specific encampment, that nuance can get lost. What often happens is um, government has a very short attention span. So if some people are saying, just get them the hell out of my sight, and some people are saying, I want them out of my sight, but I want them housed, the first thing most elected officials are going to do is get them out of, out of people's sight. Mike says no one official is responsible for homelessness and everything that causes it. By the time neighbors complain about an unhoused encampment and demand urgent action, the city has limited options for how to respond. 
most people who are housed probably don't perceive it this way. Um, but basically, they are asking the police, the sanitation department, uh, the, the the city, uh, to you know use the, the the power of the state to punish people who are unhoused, right? With, with a limited number of resources, with a limited number of dollars, the 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 loudest refrain is uh, strategies that inevitably punish people or, or threaten people or, or, or push them down or, or further into poverty or into the criminal justice system instead of voices that are saying, spend more on, on jobs, on housing, on healthcare, on education, spend more on mental health, on substance abuse recovery. In the early months of 2021, as the city went all out to offer interim housing to the residents of Echo Park Lake, word got around. Unhoused people from all over the city came to the park in the hopes of getting the same offer. From the city's perspective, the situation looked dire. We knew that something was coming. In the days leading up to it, it was obvious because, you know, there were so many outreach workers there. We were getting information from the inside, like, that. oh, yeah, there's a big sweep that's going to happen. When we would look at each other's eyes, um, wherever you would go around the park, there was a sadness in everyone's eyes because we knew it was going to happen. But at the same time, we knew who was going to be the last ones. We knew that we were going to stay there. We were going to fight till the very end. And in that came a bittersweet solidarity, unification. And it just, it was almost like the feeling of Christmas. You know how Christmas, everybody wants to get together. Everybody wants to like, you know, be there for each other. It was like that. It's like when we decided as a, as a community the homeless encampments of a park community, that no matter what happened, we would always look out for each other. And we would fight for our home because that's the only home that we had. This is what community looks like! On March 24th, when people at the camp got word that the LAPD was preparing to close the park and hundreds of protesters came to defend the camp, Queen and Wall Street were moved by the outpouring of support. I saw a gathering of people that I have never seen in Echo Park other than the movements of Cesar Chavez. We, I saw cultures come together. I saw businesses come out. I saw moms, grandmas, uncles, children come out. I remember seeing a, a poor girl. She was sobbing because she was being arrested. And she probably had never been arrested before. And I remember yelling out to her, you know, you're a hero. You're a hero because she was, you know, she, she did everything she could to stand there with us and to fight. She wasn't a resident, but she got it that we were fighting for something special, community, and, and having the right to just be, have dignity as a homeless person. And, and that's why so many people were there, because they understood that, you know, they're probably only, you know, a hospital bill or, 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 or an accident away from being homeless themselves, and what are they going to do then? Where are they going to go? So I remember yelling to her, you're a hero. A total of 187 people were arrested during the protest, including several journalists and legal observers. I had no idea, like, the scale of what, what was going to happen. Riley walked down from his house and filmed some of the protest. I guess, yeah, I was, um, I was pretty taken aback by that and uh, just surprised that it had gotten to this point. You know, if the, city had, if the city had done outreach and offered housing to people when there were only 10 um, 
10 tents in the park, this, that would have never have happened. It should have never been allowed to get to that point. And I said that over and over again, it should have never been allowed to get to that point. While the police were facing off with protesters, city contractors were on the other side of the park, driving poles into the ground and connecting them with chain link fencing, section by section. Reporter Jonah Valdez captured this sound. Here's Ashley. We were like, there's no way they're gonna actually fence this whole thing off in one night. Like, that can't happen. That's not humanly possible. Like, they can't put up a fence around this whole place in a night. We got in there before they managed to close that little part off. But literally by three in the morning, that fence was done. The night before, police had given the remaining residents of the camp 24 hours to leave. Queen and Wall Street, along with a handful of other camp residents, spent that night inside the fence after everyone else went home. To me personally, the silence killed me. The silence hurt. Um, a lot of fear. I felt a lot of fear of, like, losing my house again. More than anything, I just felt very, very lost. Like, what am I going to do now? As the sky lightened, she could see that the police had blocked off all the exits from the fenced-in area. Anyone who came out wasn't allowed back in. Ever. A crowd of protesters came back and huddled outside the fence. But by this point, there was nothing anyone could do to stop the eviction. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I am Los Angeles City Council Member Mitch O'Farrell. That morning, Council Member O'Farrell held a press conference on the street beside the park. We have had a very successful housing operation uh, that began in January. Since that time, including yesterday evening and this morning, we have housed 161 individuals who've been experiencing homelessness at Echo Park Lake. Later that day, he addressed the city council to explain why the park had been closed. The months-long work to get people housed at Echo Park Lake precedes the temporary and necessary closure of the park facility so crews can begin extensive repairs. The repair work there includes lighting, plumbing, uh, removal of hazardous material, and repairs due to widespread vandalism. For anyone to convey that this is somehow a utopian existence or that as the LA Times was quoted in an article yesterday that the park has evolved into a commune-like society or that the environment is somehow nurturing, this couldn't be further from the truth. Here are the realities. The park has, in fact, devolved into a dangerous, chaotic environment for all users. O'Farrell went on to accuse the leaders of the encampment of charging people to live there and running a prostitution ring. Everyone I talked to from the camp told me those accusations are false. That night, Ayman Ahmed, one of the men who had founded the camp, and another camp resident, David Bush Lilly, decided to be the last ones to resist. They sat down inside the fence and stayed there until police came in and arrested them. They were released shortly after. The park would stay closed to everyone for two months.
I just like I'm, I deal with a lot of like guilt and like feel like I could have done better in a lot of ways, like been a better leader. Um, I just like, remind myself that we were up against like basically a militarized force like LAPD. Like there was no way that like a peaceful community that was as small as we were like was going to rival that. But I just like beat myself up sometimes like is there something that I could have done better? Is there a way that we could have actually preserved that space for that community? Um, and like, where will we build something like that again? Ashley and other activists raised enough money to put some of the last residents of the camp up in motel rooms while they tried to figure out what to do next. Queen and Wall Street spent almost a month in their motel room. Queen became close with Ashley, who helped her apply for a job at Ground Game LA, and she got it. Thanks to her new income, Queen and Wall Street were able to get an apartment through a LASA-funded program called Rapid Rehousing. They're among only a handful of former Echo Park Lake residents who ended up with permanent housing. Sometimes I have to, like, stop myself from worrying too much because I'll be like, where are they? How are they? You know, I wonder if they eat, they've eaten... Um, and it sucks because we, we lost them in every sense of the way. We lost them. And with everyone that we lost, a little part of us got lost as well. I feel very powerless because I don't know where half of my people are. I don't know how they're doing. I don't know how they're feeling. It's just I feel powerless and very sad. We'll talk more about what happened to the other residents of the camp in part two of this story. Queen was in and out of the hospital in the weeks after we spoke. She almost died from an internal infection. But she's better now, and back home in their apartment. While she was in the hospital, she found out she and Wall Street are expecting a child, who's also doing fine. Coming up in part two of this episode, Mark talks to people living in hotel rooms as part of Project Room Key, where strict rules can make housing seem more like jail. The going notion seems in public's mind is, oh, they're taken care of. They're in the hotel. Everything's fine. They're not seeing the carcerality in the system because they haven't experienced it. They can't sense it, you know, they can't smell it. Thanks to Mark Betancourt for that story. For more information, toolkits, and to download the interactive transcript for this episode, visit 70millionpod.com. 70 Million is an open source podcast because we believe we are all part of the solution. We encourage you to use our episodes and supporting materials in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere they can make an impact. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes of our five seasons without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the MacArthur Foundation and is produced by LWC Studios. This episode was edited by Monica Lopez and Jaleka Lentigua, who is the show's creator and executive producer. Paulina Velasco is our managing producer. Erica Wong mixed this episode. Haley Milliken fact-checked the story. 
and Michelle Baker is our photo editor. I'm Mitzi Miller. Thank you for listening.